Welcome to episode one of the Being an Event podcast. I'm Alex here with Andrew, and today we feature an interview with philosopher and intellectual historian Knox Peden, where we talk about French rationalism, the journal Cahier pour l'analyse, Spinoza, Jean Cavaillas, and lots of other things. But first, Andrew and I offer our reading and interpretation of Alan Badiou's Being an Event, Part 1, which is focused on the question of being. going it started um (laughs) so we don't even have a title right maybe the title should just be being an event that's what i was thinking cool but i'm i'm the kind of person who just does generic titles and or plagiarizes titles from other people so this could be a combo plagiarized generic the event of being (laughs) (laughs) um so yeah, so this is episode one of maybe a seven, eight-ish uh, episode limited series around being an event. Uh, Badiou's big treatise published in French in 1988. Um, and then something that always kind of shocked me, uh, not translated for 17 years, translated into English, published by Continuum in 2005. Um, uh, translated by Oliver Feltham. And when we quote from the text, we'll be referring to the 2005 English edition. Um, but yeah, what do you make of that? Because this 17-year gap, um, publishing something in 1988 in French at the height of just like rabid French theory mania, where everyone is exhuming Roland Barthes, you know, like, dry cleaning receipts and publishing them or whatever um, for a book like this. I mean, I guess you can see why, but it's, it's just, it's, it's surprising. I think that a book like this just sort of sat on the shelf for 17 years. <laughs> maybe, maybe some of this has to do with the reception of French theory where people are sort of turning away from Marxism. And so bad you a stalwart militant Marxist already has a sort of strange appeal. And then he's a system builder building it on top of math, which probably feels really esoteric to people. And he's, and he's kind of breaking, he's sort of running against the current, right? Like the return to truth um, that we'll talk a little bit about with Knox Peden later. Um, The return to truth cuts against the, at least the cartoon version of postmodern theory, if not the the substance of it. Um, But I think the math, yeah, the math stuff is such a, is such a block, a mental block for a lot of people. It's also a time where I think some people were overplaying their hand with the post and post-structuralism. So he may have been identified as someone of this sort of Althusserian moment and that he hadn't yet done the post and so he was trapped in some previous era. Yeah. Well, he is, I, I think a theme that will come out, at least from my perspective, is I really think of Bedu as a modernist, right? He's a sort of philosophical, political modernist. and. So maybe that's also part of uh, the overarching kind of angle or whatever that we'll present, which is to try to understand Badiou as a modernist and 
I think he's often described as someone who pushes back against so-called postmodern theory, but the, you know, the counterpart to that claim is, is, well, then what does that make him? And I think it's pretty clear that, that he takes a, a position of political modernism. And, and if we think of the people who are the most important for the reception there, it tends to be literary figures. Oh, yeah. Whose systems are maybe as about as polar opposite from math as you can get. So Foucault and Derrida who themselves seem to be very strong targets of Badiou's work. And so as people are taking them on, yeah, you know, Badiou must come later. Similar with the Deleuze reception, which sort of seemed to take a little time to hit as well. Right. And I think later, you know, Knox Peden, um, I, I, I think he, he, when we spoke with him, he described Badiou basically as a Sartrean, I think he called him a Sartrean novelist, which is, which is a funny characterization and completely apt, I think. Um, people forget that, Bedieu has had a, a, a long, long career, massive body of work, including series of literary works um, more when he was younger. Um, and there's a quote actually from Peter Halward that, that, that describes Bedieu's project overall that I like. Um, and he puts it this way, um, Bedieu's project is to renew quasi-Sartrean notions of a project and commitment in terms compatible with the anti-humanist analysis of structures developed by Althusser and Lacan, and perhaps more importantly, with the scientific or mathematizing formalism characteristic of the French epistemological tradition. And we could even just say um, French rationalism, maybe more generally. He's a strange figure in the introduction where he lays out basically the stakes of his project and some initial definitions. He makes very clear that he's critiquing what he calls a poetic ontology, yeah. by which he means Heidegger and post-phenomenologists, where we'd include Derrida and then subsequent figures like Nancy, like Le Labard, perhaps even like Kristeva and Rigore. Yeah. And so, man, he's not making very many friends for what was going on then. And <laughs> he's both retro and novel at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And he, so these are kind of like the three, you're getting into sort of like the three trends that he outlines, you know, in, in this kind of um, unapologetic way in the, in the beginning, the introduction of, of being an event. And he identifies, is, is this the one or is it in Logics of Worlds where he says that Heidegger is the last living, what does he say? The last, like, Last universally recognizable philosopher. <laughs> Page one. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, so Heidegger, like you said, is the representative of um, this position of the poetic ontology, which I think we're going to have to come back a lot to this because, you know, just to, just to kind of give away the, the ending a little bit from my perspective is that um, yeah, that description of Heidegger makes a lot of sense to me. But, you know, once Badiou starts talking about like the abyss of ontology and the impasse. Naming. Yeah, naming and and sort of these like radically incompatible, um, almost almost like registers, right? Um, I, I can't help but think maybe that's not a poetic ontology, but it's certainly a romantic one. You know, it's one that is dealing with the ineffable in a very literal sense. Um, so that's something we'll have to come back to, but, um, so yeah, he lays out these three trends. There's, there's Heidegger in the poetic ontology. Um, he identifies logical positivism in the Vienna circle. 
And then this I like because it makes sense, but it says he puts it in a phrase that maybe doesn't hit right, I think, for an English-speaking audience, but he calls the third group post-Cartesian theory of the subject, um, Marx, Lenin, Freud, Lacan. And this is an indication really for what we would just call, I think, critical theory, theory in general, post-structuralist theory. Um, and I don't know, I like that. I like that he carves out such such like big space for that, um, you know, and it's clear that he wants to um, differentiate himself from that. But also, um, as he says that he wants, you know, he says he wants to draw a diagonal through these three. Um, and I love how the diagonal is almost like a technology in Bedju. And this will be a theme that we come back to again later too, right? He's, he's inspired by his great, um, you know, uh, intellectual mentor, um, Cantor and his diagonalization proof. Um, and, and so Badgie says he's drawing a diagonal through these three. It's clear for me what he's taking from the third one, he's taking subject, right. Um, but I wonder what, what diagonally he's borrowing or modifying from the other two. He does this, he does a sort of, um, geometric, almost like permutation, analysis of each three on the third page where he starts sort of putting them together to figure out what each one has done or what he might think is novel about them uh, through a form of periodization. So he says that we're in a new epic of science beyond both the Greek and the Galilean. Okay. You know, I can dig that. That's where mm. sort of Cantor and set theory takes us beyond even uh, Galilean for science. Um, a new subject. I think you're right on here with that actually being from the third of those three objects of sort of critique, but a diagonal in which he says, we no longer have a founding subject of Descartes to Hegel. He says, we may or may not have one um, from Marx and Freud, who he says sort of still maintain something legible about that previous form of the subject that he wants to get beyond. So he wants to get beyond Descartes and Hegel. Woo. That's a <laughs> pretty big proposition. And then in third, he sees that there's a departure from the doctrine of truth that he says crosses paths with Heidegger and then the mathematicians and modern theories of the subject. And so with Heidegger, I was talking to some Greek friends about this a few weeks ago, Heidegger really doesn't like this transformation from a dr Greek form of truth to a Roman form of truth, where the Greek form right, of truth right. was obscure or cryptic. You know, you go to the Oracle and you have to sort of keep laboring through this truth because there's no immediate answer. And then the, the Romans- And it has like a, an organic whole, there's like an organic authenticity mm -hmm. to the Greek mm -hmm. for, for, for Heidegger, right? And then, you know, Heidegger doesn't like this sort of over formalization with, with with the Romans, and he wants to sort of get back to it. And so, I mean, honestly, I think Heidegger's right on that point. Like, who, the fuck the Romans, right? Like, <laughs> I, there's nothing good in the Roman Empire. Sorry, <laughs> but we're gonna get a even a different form of truth through Bedu, right? We're not getting uh, American British American positivism, nor are we getting this sort of ineffable, right. cryptic truth that has to be sort of decoded through life. I love how 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 Bedu is just sort of like defiantly French, you know, like he does want to restage this tradition of French rationalism. He does not want to be an Anglo-Saxon thinker in in any form. 
which it's, which is important, I think, to stress, given how sometimes, you know, when I'm trying to troll people, I point out that so many influential contemporary French thinkers are basically, you know, like, you know, Deleuze is basically an Anglo-Saxon thinker. You know, Latour is basically an Anglo-Saxon <laughs> thinker. Well, Latour, yeah, definitely. You know, they yeah. both are embracing um, empiricism, which is... You know, I mean, we know the, you know, we know the intellectual tradition of that. They both come out and and cite all of these like um, authors, like um, you know, like James and and Purse. And anyway, that's that's another another argument for another day. But I but I do kind of love how Bedu is kind of defiantly um, French, and and maybe this is a good point to point to to sort of bring out, um, you know, I think over the course of this of this. Um, podcast we're you know we're not here to like evangelize in favor necessarily of of Bedu or being an event but I think both of us in different ways are drawn to this book and I personally feel like um it would be great to sort of have increased interest in Bedu and and in this book we can also talk about his his reception right in the English-speaking world mm-hmm. it seemed like the 2000s that decade was really a time when people, when there was an intense amount of interest in Bad You and people were reading all this stuff. And it seems like it's, we're sort of maybe at a lower point now. But um, even though he is um, this significant living philosopher with a massive body of work spanning 50 years, we should acknowledge, I think, at the outset that he is not universally admired, to say the least. Oh, so yeah. I think about his style. He has this unapologetic desire to be a great philosopher in the European tradition. And there's a kind of like um, didacticism. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a kind of like sort of um, system builder. Yeah, exactly. The, the, the grand system builder. That's not everyone's cup of tea. That's a big turnoff for a lot of people. Um, There's obviously the math stuff. There's a, there's a kind of technical formal, um, demand put on the reader, um, which, which is a turnoff, but then also just more generally to locate mathematics so centrally in his project is a huge turnoff for a lot of people. So there's that. Um, I think a, a big thing for me is his relationship to the current trends in cultural studies are a little um, ambiguous as well. Yeah. Where does he stand in the culture wars, which have become ubiquitous and have really drawn partisan lines among um, social and political thinkers? Yeah, he doesn't often hit the right um, tone, I think, that a lot of English readers want. But I will say in in his defense, you know, Badiou is consistently writing even books and, you know, uh, newspaper articles and things like that, that um, I think... Uh, display a pretty, pretty like noble left position, right? Um, like he'll defend, um, you know, any number of of left positions, whether that's like on immigration or, um, you know, racial tolerance. Um, did you did you post something about the veil? Thing? Yeah, he had a a brief intervention in the veiling debates that were happening in France in which he was an unapologetic supporter. He said that veiling laws are pro-capitalist, implying somehow that uh, they might be, uh, veiling might be this interesting, like uh, anti-surveillance device that really actually worked with the the new media art of the time. 
Yeah, man. Prophylactic ontology. Yeah. Okay. So Beju is not universally admired. He's got this kind of style, stylistic problem, maybe a technical formalism problem. The other big block, I think, for a lot of people is his Platonism. Um, you know, he describes his project, I love this phrase actually, as a Platonism of the multiple. Maybe we can bring out what that means. Um, but I think of the of the sort of like heavy hitters from ancient Greece, the by far the one who has had the most like kind of long-term influence, at least on present day, is is absolutely Aristotle, right? Like nobody wants to um come out as a platonist at least maybe 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 in analytic philosophy there's there's weird platonists or something so that's i think a big problem for a lot of people um and then fourth oh well uh, before we do that you know there are debates over the canon now these days yeah you know what does it mean to do philosophy from a genuinely global or decolonial standpoint yeah Yeah. and so the the greeks there's this question of like where do they stand though i'm very much a supporter of friends who teach in philosophy departments who like always go through the Greeks who say, you know, the Greeks themselves were part of the greater Mediterranean, if not even the Middle East. Yeah. And that they themselves were not a sort of European project, though they get sort of tied into forms of conquest and empire. Yeah. And so it really takes a retroactive view to yeah. see them as these yeah. sort of, yeah. you know, great white men. Though, of course, they were slave owning and they were patriarchal. Yeah, there are these things to question. I agree with that point that that when people respond to, you know, things like Eurocentrism, I think they're referring to a notion of the of Europe or the European that is like a modern or early modern invention. Yet at the same time, you know, there are the kind of what who like the Alan Blooms or the Matthew Arnolds of the world who want to claim, you know, the sort of like. um whatever claim like greek harmony or you know like the parthenon or like apollo or someone right and sort of fold it and heidegger does this too you know so i think mm-hmm. i think you're right that it is odd that um plato or or whoever gets gets grabbed as sort of the like villain of of some european imperial project Nevertheless, I think there is like a cultural claim that often gets made that has that has force. Yeah. Um, I mean, just to just to flag it, page ten under number three, he's interested in making this claim for the uniqueness of Greek philosophy, yeah. and he sort of already distances himself from the Heideggerian claim. He says, "Not the enigma of the poetic fragment." Yeah, which could have just as easily appeared in India, Persia, China, if philosophy. Yeah was born in Greece, it's because there's an ontology of a deductive mathematics. Yeah. So he's at least doing a narrow claim of math, but yeah, you know, yeah. I'm not a mathematician, so I don't know how uniqueness actually goes to that sort of Greek moment, of course, or as a form of philosophical reason. Yeah. And so many figures go back to ancient Greece because the material is so weird. You know, I mean, Deleuze was obsessed with the pre-Socratics. Heidegger was obsessed with the pre-Socratics. And and I can see why, you know, because that material is just chock full of just kind of modes of thinking that are so kind of alien and alienating in the best possible way. Which is maybe why we want bad you, or at least why I am. As someone who yeah. sort of worked through my Felizian moment, I'm still sort of in it somehow, but I'm looking. <laughs> oh, you're admitting, you're admitting it. You're admitting you're uh, moving on. Well, I, I'm... <laughs> 
I, there's always going to be a certain pluralism to my thinking where I want to look at new and different models to keep challenging and to keep expanding. And I think that's precisely what Badiou is useful for. Like if he's, if he's just another Marxist, then we already have those resources. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, well, I think his Marxism is an interesting question. And, I, you know, I was just going to add something that will come out in subsequent episodes that w- that that we've already um, talked about with some with some guests is that you know Badiou and Deleuze are maybe closer on certain points than people might realize, um, despite the fact that from far away they seem very different. And Badiou wrote this you know pretty relentless um, takedown of 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 Deleuze um, after his death, but. Um, so, so yeah, so this idea that Badiou is not sort of universally admired, I think the fourth sticking point for a lot of people is mm. politics, right? His affiliation with French Maoism that we'll explore a little bit um, uh, toward the end of the episode with Knox Peden um, in the 1960s and 70s um, that are even, I think, influencing a book like Being an Event, even if that work is more... Uh, obvious on the page in um, his previous large treatise, uh, Theory of the Subject. Um, so I think those four, there's probably other, there's probably other things that people don't like about Petu, but, <laughs> but I think those four um, are the ones that come up the most often. And I think it's important, at least for me, to kind of acknowledge them at the outset of this series. Um, you know, we'll be dipping into that. I'm not on board, you know, with, with necessarily everything here either. So we can, we can elaborate that yeah. as we go on. Um, and someone who really was not on board with Badiou, um, even in 1982, uh, was in fact, our old frenemy, uh, Guy Debord. Uh, and at a, one point I was reading through his correspondence and I ran across a reference to Badiou and I just have to read it here because it's hilarious. So this is from a Guy Debord letter. Um, uh, dated May 16th, 1982, written in response to a friend of his who had passed along to Debord um, the review that Badiou had written uh, of one of Debord's films, um, the film uh, Injiram. Um, so this is, um, so is Debord responding to his friend. Uh, Without you, I would surely have missed these latest affronteries from Badiou the Maoist. And too bad he hasn't been picked up with the rest of the trash. <laughs> All those critics I intend to crush. I'd say he's the worst of them all. What does he want us to believe? That we made the long march together? Ooh. So, so maybe Gita Board will, will stand um, as, as a kind of like, you know, um, lurking in the wings, um, keeping us, us honest about, uh, about Badiou's politics and his maybe sort of... Um, I don't know, uh, kind of, you know, going against um, some of the most, you know, more expected positions on yeah. a lot of things. I mean, it strikes me that he's... I don't even really know what to make of bad use Maoism, honestly, but... I mean, it, it, it strikes me that there's at least two valences to this remark, of course. One of them being, is it worth the work? You know, the long march, just in a very immediate sense. And then the political one, which is, you know, there's this sort of forced march of the Maoist dimension, of the discipline, of the, you know, fidelity to the event that we're going to have, which it seems like De Boer was yeah. a sp- spontaneist, perhaps at the end. And so, or to right. the end. Yeah. 
Right, right. And yeah, and also DeBoard, I mean, this will probably come out more is, you know, I mean, he was on the anarchist side, not the Leninist side. You know, he, he, he's not really a system builder in the, in the same way. Um, and so maybe that's also part of his, 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 um, I'm not even, not even reaction. I mean, whatever, DeBoard hated everyone. Like, so, so there's nothing special about his, this ire toward, toward Peggy. <laughs> um, but that, that might, that might explain that yeah. part of it too. So maybe the segues into, we already looked at part one, these sort of three statements he makes and how he's going to move through them uh, into Lazine translation, maybe a transversal line. But then part two, yeah. right there, the philosophical statement that, and we can add a colon here, mathematics is ontology, the science of being qua being, the trace of light which illuminates the speculative scene. All right, Ooh. we're in it. Yeah, it's weird because for a while I was this sort of Beju apologist. And whenever anyone said math- mathematics is ontology, I, I would like pedantically correct them and be like, oh no, he never, he never actually says that, but he says, you know, you know, ontology is spoken in the language of mathematics. So it's kind of like framed within a discourse and then rereading being, being an event. Um, that's not true. I mean, he comes straight out on multiple occasions and says mathematics is ontology. Um, even though, isn't this true though, that in, in more recent stuff, he's kind of been walking this back. Um, I think you, you mentioned that to me, right? That in, in some of his more recent lectures and maybe even in um, more recent writings, he's trying to sort of like modulate the mathematics as ontology claim. Um, maybe we'll have to look that up. Um, so yeah, so let's start with this and, and like, just try to figure out what, what the heck, what the heck this means. Yeah. And I'll, I'll have to admit, I'm probably the proxy for the listener in this case, where being very open, admitting it, this is my first time slowly and systematically reading being an event. And so it means I don't know any of the surprises yet. I'm just taking <laughs> oh. each claim on one by one and letting it build. So I don't know where it's going. So I shouldn't give it a giveaway any spoilers is what you're saying. Okay. Good to know. Good <laughs> I'll, to know. I'll take some, but, um, but I'm, I'm naive as a babe here. And so yeah. I only can see what's on the page and sort of work with that. Well, I first read being an event um, with, of all people, Eugene Thacker. I think I've told you this story where we would meet every, every couple of weeks at a cake shop in the Lower East Side, which is a cafe that I liked to go to because it reminded me of like shitty cafes in Seattle. Um, and yeah, we worked our way through it, which is sort of hilarious in retrospect, because I think Eugene is, this is just like a hundred percent, not the kind of stuff that he likes. Um, and he, I don't think you ever would read this stuff now. So it was that brief window. He loves kind of the um, scholasticism stuff too. He, right? It's true. So, I mean, he does. It's probably- he does. Does, but it has there. to be weird. It has to have like slime or, or, you know, like, um, you know, like acephalic, like, you know, zombie bodies or something like that. Well, and, and that's what Badu seems to get rid of. Mm. It's so clear that he's not reading math as a metaphor, right? He's not reading math as inspiration, as an artist or a creative or an experimenter. He's not working with it. Right. Like as some sort of raw material. You know, so when he's talking about thinkers like Cantor, he doesn't go into the biography. It doesn't tell you that right. Cantor was this deeply religious figure who went mad thinking yeah. that infinity was connected to God and all these yeah. other things. Like that's gone. Yeah. He really is 
keeping true to the mathematical formalization. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's a really good point. Um, and he does, you know, one of the things I like about being an event that almost makes it, you know, um, it, it makes it easier to read is that, is that Badiou is constantly alternating between a more sort of like straightforward expository, like philosophical prose, and then sections or whole chapters that are, that are highly formal, formalistic and, and mathematical. Um, and so he's, he intersperses for people who haven't looked at the book before he intersperses, um, all throughout a series of, um, he calls the chapters meditations on individual figures. And some of those we will dip into some of them we won't. So like in the opening sections, there's one devoted to Plato and then there's one devoted to Aristotle. And later we have ones devoted to Spinoza and, and, but, but you're right. He doesn't deal with these figures on kind of like a biographical level maybe um there is the 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 figure of of jean caveas that we bring up a little bit in the discussion with knox peden later um where i actually do think caveas is important for Badiou uh at the level of his biography because it's such a you know tragic and compelling biography he was he was executed by the nazis um, mm -hmm. and he, and he serves almost as a kind of mathematical martyr for Badiou. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Deleuze said, what did Deleuze say in the cinema books? He said, um, um, you know, that the world war two, world war two ended, or was it Godard? I forget. Even, maybe it's in Histoire de Cinema, one of those two, um, where the claim is basically that world war two, um, destroyed the French film industry. And I think mm -hmm. Badiou says something similar where he said that World War II, I don't, I don't know if it's destroyed, but essentially like um, decimates um, uh, French mathematics. Um, There's so many great mathematicians, philosophers, and physicists joined the resistance yeah. were, you know, and the, the, the resistance was really difficult. You know, I'm no, I'm no historian, but the Vichy government was brutal. Yeah. They put in Nazi policies and it's amazing to think that it's these great intellectual luminaries who dedicated themselves to it and so many died. Yeah. And a big part of maybe a hidden part of structuralism, post-structuralism in France is recovering some of these partially formulated ideas mm. of these people who quite heroically sort of sacrificed themselves. That's an excellent point. Yeah. And then the corollary you have to that is, is Germany in the second half of the 20th century, which becomes almost sort of like um, uh, consistently sort of liberal democratic, right? Even in, even at the level of intellectuals um, yeah. where it becomes very, it becomes very, very difficult to do anything else except for a kind of like down the middle um, liberal democratic position. I mean, for obvious reasons, I'm not yeah. complaining about it. But, um, except for the student radicals. Of <laughs> Um, we're still an inspiration i mean that great um film that came out just a few years ago about the german radicals that i think we both watched it's just such a great movie. oh yeah a german a german youth yeah is that what it's called a german youth um yeah so okay so we have this claim mathematics is ontology i mean i have i have one angle on this that may help mm -hmm. maybe maybe this isn't right but I, this is how i sort of understand this because I, I still think the mathematics is ontology claim is hard to uh, swallow and hard, even just hard to understand. Um, mm -hmm. So I think the first thing to point out is that 
it's it's that there's that there's even a stronger claim that Beijing is not making. So the stronger claim is that mm. um, being itself is math, right? And so I think the stronger claim, if we want to put a proper name on it, we could call it um, Pythagoreanism, right? So the Pythagoreans would, you know, would claim that that the very like stuff of being the very stuff of the world is mathematical in nature. And I don't think that's bad use position. I think he's, I think he, you know, he is maybe a Platonist, which is one step sort of like pulled back from the brink, <laughs> right. Um, from that stronger position. So I think that's important to point out. But the other thing that, yeah. that I, how I try to like metabolize this claim is that um, is to think about through the, through the notion of like math thesis as um, education or training in the Greek sense. And so mathematics then is really just sort of like the cultivation of the faculties of being human. And it doesn't necessarily mean strictly what we call mathematics, right? Like geometry and algebra, or whatever, although it could mean that. And so I think for, um, for Bedu, it's mathematics is, a, is like a, an arrow that points at um, sort of like rigorous formal um, articulation of whatever kind. And so when he says mathematics is ontology, I think he's just saying that like whenever you ponder ontological questions, you will necessarily have to either lapse into or at the very least touch on a, a more kind of like honed, sharpened, trained, <laughs> abstracted, formalized posture on things, right? You'll say like, what you'll try to, you'll try to understand what, you know, what, what is a one, what is something as opposed to something else. Right. And if you say, what is a one, you've already uttered, you know, the monad, the, the unit term of one. And so you're already dealing even in the most, most primitive sense with, with mathematical language. I don't know. That's a very bleak, oblique um, angle on it, but that's how I sort of understand it. I think the text absolutely supports this. So here's a few moments to sort of bring out. Right there on page four at the beginning when he introduces it. Mathematics is ontology hyphen, the science of being, mm -hmm. qua being. Yeah. Right. So it's not mathematics is being. He could have easily said that if he wanted. Yeah. It's the science of being. So right there, it's already an instrument or model or system for treating it. And then it's not in the text here, but in other places when he's critiquing the poetic ontology, he'll say things like, we have not properly grasped being qua being because language is imprecise and inadequate in and of itself. And so what he thinks something like set theory offers is a more precise approach to state it, right? We're already in this, I don't know if it's descriptive, it's probably more philosophical than that. And then the text itself, first he, he does two negatives before he pulls in the positive. So the negative first one is critiques dialectic. He says, he's not an old Marxist. He's not a Hegelian, <laughs> which certainly will scandalize some people. Then on the next page, he says, he's not a logician either. Yeah. He agrees with Gödel's incompleteness. He doesn't yeah. think that yeah, he really does. The set theory is everything. Yeah. Nor does he seek to sort of butt up against uh, everything that is possible with it either. Like he's not 
an expansionist with set theory to try and like make it cover as many cases as possible, which is maybe what the sort of analytic tradition is. And then he goes into precisely what you said. He says, the founding of math is what helps us understand a real in the same way in which Jacques and Miller or Lacan will use their real as well. So in the same way in which the Slovenians, for instance, have done this great move in Lacanianism for the last two decades, of saying that, okay, you know, we talked about the imaginary, we had talked about the symbolic, but in fact, the foundation upon which the psyche sits is the real. Uh, and thus that's the sort of foundational moment for psychoanalysis. He's saying there's another real that can only be gotten to through set theory, but that's for philosophy and being. He's a Lacanian of philosophy or something. Maybe that's, that's my claim here. That's, I'm, I'm going to start. See if it holds out. So he has this, um, this line that I love toward the beginning. I think it's on 23 um, where he's describing a kind of like classic posture in metaphysics. And the line is what presents itself is essentially multiple. What presents itself is essentially one. And he says, and, and this I like because it, it sort of sums up what metaphysics is, right? The traditional metaphysics posture where you have, you have a sort of like almost like a fabric or a background or something that's inherently multiple. Um, yet it is presented in the form of entities or ones. And this will be, I think, very important for Bedu. And I think he's more or less like participating in that exact tradition, although he's doing maybe a judo move on it, which we'll get to in a sec. Um, but but I like that a lot. And this is something also that we flagged um, when we, when we were when we were doing um, our episode on on Spinoza and, and Deleuze, that um, Bedu almost actually has a kind of plane of imminence foundation, right? Like, um, and maybe metaphysics does too. I don't know. But, but in the sense that Badji really wants to insist on, on um, the multiple being the foundation that he, he builds, that he builds on. Absolutely. Um, and he even goes to the even more extreme position, which is he calls them in, what is it? Incoherent multiples. Mm -hmm. Inconsistent. In, sorry, inconsistent multiples. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so we have this, um, this kind of um, a, a, I would even call it a kind of like, uh, well, I don't know. This is maybe, maybe I have to walk this back, but I, I've often kind of struggled with trying to figure out, well, you know, what is the degree of bad use rationalism, right? Like he, is he actually a digital philosopher in, in, in kind of the, the modern sense? Does he think that everything is, is made up of, you know, sort of discrete formal or symbolic entities um, and I'm not sure that's the right description because of this attention to the multiple. Um, but at this point, we can see that um, out of this sort of discrete nature, bodies and languages, as he puts it, um, there explodes the, quote, impossible event of truth. Right. And so this is kind of the fundamental dynamic that sets up um, the entire project. Um, so I struggle with this question of the arithmetical or in, in maybe anachronistic parlance, the digital, um, and if he does center 
arithmetic or the digital, it's strangely, this is how I would put it. It's, it's like an arithmetic without the monad, which is a contradiction in terms really, but he, he wants to um, militantly suppress the one, right? Um, he says, there is yeah. no one. In other words, every multiple is a multiple of multiples. And this is maybe a way to, to close the loop on sort of like why math, why set theory. And I think one part of the answer is that for him, set theory is just like a really weird, exotic way of thinking that's actually very radical for him, right? Like we might think like, oh, math, it's like this staid, boring, you know, like reactionary way of thinking or something. But Baijiu, for Baijiu, it's exactly the opposite. Um, for him, the, the, the set theoretical premise that everything is a multiple, for him, is just like, totally radical yeah okay so um, let's it's it's super anti-essentialist yeah. for him yeah let's back up okay because for some people everything on sets might be a little new so when bad talking about math he's not talking about mere calculation yeah in fact there's there's zero calculations that go on here he's <laughs> so it's true. not about measurement it's not about uh statistical thinking and it's not even about like differentials, yeah. really, which, which would get you in the realm of Deleuze, but also just like a lot of modern physics, you know, about things in motion and how they sort of relate to one another. For him, it's all about sets, which I think you're right. It, it is this wonderful sort of dovetail of where both philosophy and math are asking super theoretical but foundational questions yeah. of each other. So. In philosophy, there's the like, is there something rather than nothing? If it is, what is that something? Or if it's that nothing, how does something mm -hmm. come out of nothing? You know, and we have these sort of um, speculative ontologies that come out of it. But then we also have, you know, very immediate ones like the Big Bang and what was the origin of the Big mm -hmm. Bang and blah, 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 all that. And then on the math side, what Cantor did that was so novel is he said, okay, we think that we have numbers like zero, one, two, three, four. But if you actually look more precisely, the gap mm. between zero and one is infinitely mm -hmm. divisible. And so where does it even start? If you just keep dividing, it goes into infinity. So in fact, do zero and one come out of infinity rather yes. than infinity yes. coming out of zero and one? Boom, the figure ground reversal. And so that's where we are. It's the, 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 the bottom limit or the foundation is no longer discrete countable numbers. It's the multiple. And that's where it starts with bad you as well. Yeah. Though, of course, we'll have to get into the void and the not and all of those, but the multiple is the constitutive elements of, of the system that he's looking at his yeah. ontology. And the sets are then about how they come together as groupings, yeah. which is to say multiples of multiples, how does a multiple get turned into something that could be counted as just one, two, three, four, or? Um, right. And so that definition of the multiple, he's really just borrowing from set theory, or he's looking at set theory and saying, this is also how they think about it. Um, and that's really exciting for Bedu. Um, now, what does it mean to sort of throw out the one and replace it with the multiple? I think that's actually a pretty radical position. Um, Bedu thinks it's a radical position because it sort of suppresses 
um, what would we call it? Sort of like, sort of like an essential identity or some sort of like integral identity, right? The one, the one is such a complicated term because sometimes when people use it, they mean the all, the total, the universal. Um, other times people use the one just to mean a kind of like finite uh, entity of whatever kind. Um, and it seems like, um, yeah, I mean, he's, he's definitely suppressing the one. He says the one is not, um, he says, my entire discourse originates in an axiomatic decision, that of the non-being of the one. I don't know. Do you have a good take on that? Yeah. So, you know, I was thinking we wouldn't look to the Plato section, Okay. but he says a few things when he's talking about Plato. So, you know, a thinker we might think of as the one because, you know, he has these sort of ideal forms in this sort of nether area that we that may or may not actually exist, um, from which we might sort of compare or take our ideas of um, the thereness or the thingness of something in the world. So, of course, there's one of them that is about mm -hmm. one being and everything is right. One, continuousness. Right? But then there's also the thereness of a one. There's something. Yeah. So then, like you said, so right. this was those two different versions of the one, everything is one or as some sort of transcendent one, yeah. but also the discreteness of a one. And then he contrasts two things as well. There is a pure multiple and then there's a structured multiple, which is putting together or which is contrasting a, mm, a pure multiple right. with a pluralism. A kind of mere pluralism, yeah. right? Which, because he's not, he wouldn't, he, which bad you want, doesn't want. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That doesn't go far enough. I think mm -hmm. um, it, maybe that's sort of like bad, the bad infinity, right? Like the, like merely just adding another, adding another, adding another. Um, and maybe this is a contradiction in, in bed because, because I think you're right. He doesn't, he doesn't want to affirm the continuous yet as a student of Cantor, of course, you know, there's the two sizes of infinity and there's the, you know, quote unquote, real infinity, which is the infinity of, real numbers, which is the space of, of continuous magnitude. And so, I don't know, maybe there is a space for that somewhere. Yeah. Now to get to your nothing question, he has this clever move where he talks about within the multiple, there is no thing. Yeah, no thing. So he doesn't want to say a multiple is a collection of individual discrete objects or elements or things. He says all the way up and all the way down. Yeah, it's multiples all the way down. Yeah, it, it sets are not holes. For him, they have no predicates. Um, they're just the mere setness of it, right? Which again, he's getting this straight from set theory. Um, and there's a, I think of it almost as a kind of like the the that the 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 setness of it, or the ensembleness of it, or the groupness of it is like absolutely flimsy for for Bedu. It's completely thin. It's like the most minimal amount of like folding into a hole that you could barely even do. Mm -hmm. That's what a set is. Yeah. Um, now we, we could maybe like nitpick on this because I sort of feel like, well, you know, I mean, if you're forming into a hole, isn't that, a, isn't that a hole, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a, I don't know. This is a kind of a three card Monty thing sometimes for me on the question of the one is not because he says everything about sets say that they're aggregate. I mean, for me, everything about sets says that they're aggregates of 
atoms, right? Or, or at least there is a discreteness of a set, mm-hmm. right? You have a discrete number of things in the set. Um, and so I, I wonder if you can just deny their substantiality by fiat, which Bedu wants to do. Yeah. He wants to, there's no, it's, it's not ultimately reducible to anything, yeah. which I think is, is probably just a set theory axiom. Yeah. And so he's just saying, we're starting with set theory. If, if, if the physicists or the empiricists of the world want to contend with this, that's fine. But within the world of pure mathematics, we don't have to start with a countable right. number. Right. And he relies on this notion of the count as one, um, which I think is very powerful. And um it it brings together, it allows Bedu to sort of like allow for a oneification or a oneness to happen, right? But to insist that it is this strictly like flimsy, very, very minimal thing because, oh, why? It's not an actual thing. It's an operation. It's a thing that you do, right? Mm-hmm. You count, you name. Mm-hmm. So it's just the count as one or the, the act of naming. And yeah, I get that. It is almost like a category shift where you shift from substance or essence or da da da, and you and you shift to operation or function. But you know, me, me, Alex, as someone who studies computation and any number of other things, I'm very, very skeptical when people think that they can get out of the like substance essence problem by shifting to operation or by shifting to function. Yeah. So, well, you know. I, I, this, it may be a little too easy to cash some of this out for me because I haven't read the whole book in its totality yet to figure out where he's trying to go with this. But I'll say if we, you know, if we use like Marxism as an analog, the beauty of Marx is not, let's say, crude materialism, where he says that right. abstraction is an illusion. What he wants to say is how, starting from materialism, can we get abstraction? What is the operation or the process that we get there? And I'm guessing that this is what Badiou will turn to for the state or other things. It's an operation of power or it's an operation of control, or this is where like the social kind of leaks in, even if you want to keep mm-hmm. it purely formal. That's great. Yeah. So there will be account, there will be discrete things, but it will be because of a process or an operation that he wants to say is, um, somehow violating these the the status of the multiple of multiples yeah. and, and multiple sort of multiplicity it's, so which is it fair to say though that he that he's he, he's doing almost a kind of like soft nominalism or skepticism toward the count and the name right like which which is weird you i i, I wouldn't expect that of him right for someone who's so obsessed with math you think that he would just come straight out and be like hey i am for the symbol i'm for the count i'm for the name I'm for language. I'm for, you know, but it seems like he's actually doing something that we would maybe see more easily in someone like Deleuze, right? Like suspending the symbol, suspending language, even suspending um, the the territorialization, suspending. Um, so I don't really know what to make of that in in Badiou. Um He had some fancy footwork in meditations four and five, mm. where he establishes the void and the mark not. And yeah, I'm not sure I always, like I can follow the operations. Yeah. I can say, oh, okay. You know, like I, I can see what you're doing here, but I'm like, is there a little cheating involved? Like, what are you doing? But I think it comes back to this notion, like for Lacan, 
there has to be that constitutive reel that is a gap or it's an oversight or it's a blind spot. Yeah. And I think that that's what he's arguing here too. He's saying, here's the incompleteness. Here is why set theory alone provides us the structure or no, structure is the wrong word because he has a technical definition here. Set theory provides us the system for thinking multiplicities, inclusion, belonging, all these things that he does, but itself, it is incomplete Yeah, and it has this uh, thing that haunts it. You know, yeah. he calls it the phantom, the phantom knot, which is where he does all this work. Right. So that's the, that's the real for him Yeah, in the same way that Lacan wants yeah. the real to inform psychoanalysis. It's so wild how bad you just insists on, he doesn't really use the word vacuum. Right, good, 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 like vacuum, atom, atom, void, vacuum, whatever. But it, he he I mean, does. In, what in French it would just be vide, right? I mean, is there? Maybe a, I, I can't remember. I'd have to look that up. Yeah. Um, but but it is wild how he insists, and this is also his nihilism, of course, right? Like he insists that you have to start with the void, and and it's and it's and it's great because that gives him a scenario where basically you start in nothing, you get to natural consistent normal states and then mm -hmm. you break with that and you get to the impossible which is the invent so you go from nothing to nature to impossible or something like that yeah um and i've got a i've got a quote actually you mentioned lacan and this this we were talking about the count as one and so here's a passage i imagine that there is some sort of borrowing from lacan on on the math question um and so here's a here's lacan from his seminar 20 where he talks about um, the count, the count as one, uh, and set theory. Set theory bursts onto the scene by positing the following. Let us speak of things as one that are strictly unrelated to each other. Let us put together objects of thought, as they are called, objects of the world, each of which counts as one. Let us assemble these absolutely heterogeneous things and let us grant ourselves the right to designate the resulting assemblage by a letter. This is how set theory expresses itself at the outset. Um, and and it's, it's actually a very beautiful view of the world, I think, to, to say that the very fabric of being is radically heterogeneous. Um, and I think there's a, a political reason to do that, too, um, with the name, the count, almost as a it sort of puts the name, you know, on its heels or something like it, it makes it subsidiary. Um, maybe later we could refer to this as the moment of, of cardinality, which is to say the forming of a uh, proper name or the forming of a sort of symbolic whole from a, uh, a multiple. And, you know, the origin of the name that shows up, at least in part one, is really one of these moments where he's going through logical operations and I'm saying, oh, I can follow you, but I'm not sure I'm totally um, like with you. And it's where he's talking about the Mark Knot as the name for the void. And he says that the first name or the, the, the most important name is the name of the void, but because the void is deep, like devoid of language. It can't have any name at all other than its own name, which is, I don't know, a bard name or a, you know, impossible name, which means it can have any name, but mm -hmm. it's not really any particular name. 
other than its unique name. And suddenly this sounds very much like a, an appeal to God or something. And then he's like, no, 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 it's not God though. <laughs> yeah. And these are just in the last yeah. few pages yeah. of uh, uh, Meditation 5. And you can just follow through and you're like, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm following you here. Right, right. And he lays out this, this, this fairly um, uh, important notion in modern arithmetic, um, like so-called piano arithmetic, where basically you can, you can define the natural numbers through a sort of starting point and then a, an, an iterative operation. And so I think the count as one plays the role of that iterative operation. And, and you're right. So if you start with the void and then you apply this like count or operation on it, well, then you get another element. And then you apply the count on that, you get another element. You apply a count on that, you get another element. And all of a sudden you're counting yeah. one, two, three, four, five. And if you want to, I can walk us through the sort of moves that he makes in this. So like at the very bottom of 67, he says, okay, he's proposing an axiom of the void set. He says it is unpresentable. Mm but it is presented as a subtractive term of the presentation of presentation, which means that the multiple is not under the idea of the multiple or colon being lets itself be named within the ontological situation as that which existence does not exist. Okay. So already these like very, I mean, he, if he already hadn't said previously that he wasn't a dialectician, this would feel very dialectical, right? Yeah. So then he says, aha, what is it on 68? It is a proper name. One but it's not one, the one, it is unicity. Yes. So it's, it's a unique term. Uh, what do you make of the, the unicity of the void, right? Because he says there are not several voids. The void is not multiple. There is only one void, which to me sounds ironically similar to Deleuze's univocity of being, mm. right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, for Deleuze, it's about differentiability. It's, it's infinitely differentiating both internally and externally. So then, huh? Interestingly, right in that same paragraph, Badji then says the unicity of the void set is immediate because nothing differentiates it. <laughs> okay, so maybe a little point of <laughs> distinction there. It is an irremediable unicity based on in hyphen difference, indifference. Okay. So that's where he's trying to claim out, uh, uh, mm. uh, have a little bit of his own space. And mm. he then goes to talk about the uniqueness of the void set again. He says, the one is not. I cannot assume that the being void is a property, a species, or a common name. There are not several voids. There is only one. And then he goes into his big sort of concluding statement in the paragraph that people have to yeah. read for themselves. Yeah. Where he's sort of making his marquee statement. Yeah. So, so maybe we should also flag meditation five. There's a lot going on in meditation five. Um, we're not going to go through every bit here, but meditation five is important. Um, you know, Bedu in the in the opening meditations of the book is sort of setting out his basic materials. And five is the one where he actually just goes through the axioms of set theory. Um, and and again, I don't think we should go through them all. Um, but I would maybe want to flag power set because that will be very important for us later. And just to take a step back, a, a quick little thought about axioms, why axioms? Because um, this is very important. Um, I actually like this a lot about Bedu. This is something that Francois Laruelle does as well. Um, they both embrace axiomatic thinking, um, which I think for a lot of people is like doesn't pass the straight face test or something, right? Because well, axioms are just by definition like kind of plucked out of nowhere and don't have a foundation. Yeah. 
this is this is the Cartesian geometric rationalist method, which yeah was yeah. quite popular for a time, and then sort of fell out, but is still used in various sciences or math. And so, right, I think for some people, it won't pass the smell test because they're in a field where they've moved to other methods. But there are others where it's been widely adopted. Yes, yeah, yeah. And so the so the so the notion of the axiom is that right, like it it um it it is self-evidently true. I mean, that's one defense of the axiom. And so that could either be self-evidently true, you know, sort of through intuition, something like that, right? Like the, like the principle of identity is self-evidently true, one would claim. Um, but what I think is so powerful is that particularly in the modern era, you get this scenario where like in mathematics, um, mathematicians will basically say like, you know what, we don't really care about the foundation of the axioms. What we do care about is like a mathematical system that works right. And so what you get, and this even happens in set theory, you get almost, I would describe it almost as like a reverse engineering of the axioms mm -hmm. where they basically say, we want to have these outcomes, whether that's like consistency or like not breaking, you know, the principle of, of, non-contradiction or, or whatever the things you want to hold true. So then how can you reverse engineer a series of axioms that are necessary in order to have the outcome that you want? Yeah. And so I think that's important to, 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 to put out on the table and, yeah. and I'm not trying to like, you know, undermine the importance of the axioms of set theory or anything like that. Yeah. But I do think that there is a little bit of like a, dog wagging the or whatever the expression is mm -hmm. like or it's kind of like putting one before the other well a few a few methodological notes I, i'm not much of an axiomatician but my understanding of how mathematicians prefer and their sort of uh methodological approach to it is you should have as few axioms as possible yeah that's true because they're scary because you can always add a new axiom. You can always like, you can always like confirm a proposition by adding an axiom, right? Cause the axioms would just be like in this new axiom, we confirm the proposition. <laughs> so some of the work, if you're doing more and more foundational, you're like, you're backing it up. You're doing a bigger and more important math problem is to reduce the amount of axioms necessary. Yeah. And so with the original uh, Cantor set theory, there was this moment, this debate in which mathematicians said, geez, it's just still so unclear to us the way to resolve some of these paradoxes that seem to come through it, you know, like Russell's paradox, is to just add on a few axioms. So then we take these as the rules for how the system works mm, right. without having to resolve these sort of like deeper, more fundamental problems. Someone may come, come along in the future and resolve these mm. things for us so we won't have to sort of take them on faith anymore, but we need these. Right. Right. Almost as like a bandaid or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. So I think by the 20th century, we get into a scenario where it's not clear whether all of these axioms are, as it were, intuitively true. And I just say that as a lay person, because like, I don't even understand every single one of these axioms, even at this point. And, you know, and I've tried, <laughs> right? Like the axiom, what is the one, the um, axiom of choice? Mm. Um, that's still a, a pretty hard one for me, um, to wrap my head around it. And so how could it be intuitively true if I don't even understand what it says? 
Mm-hmm. Um, now, again, I don't think this like undercuts the validity of, of math, but it does, I think, um, put one up on the scoreboard for sort of like the more uh, f- kind of um, the, the, the like the formalist school of mathematics as opposed to other schools that um, mandate a more uh, prominent role uh, to be played by intuition. That's mm-hmm. the things have to have the things that have to actually have to like sync with a, a sort of straight ahead human um, everyday uh, experience of things. So I, I know you said we didn't have to do one by one, but yeah, I have them written down my notes so clearly I could do oh, a yeah. really do quick it. rundown. Do it. do it. Okay. First one, big one, gets its own treatment. Axiom of extensionality. Okay. For this, for Badiou, is a question of what differentiates or what is, uh, uh, what is the difference between two different sets, which is about a question of identity and difference yeah. or of maybe in a layperson's um, uh, terminology might be substitutability. And then he puts four different axioms in a row that he wants to just boom, 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 go through. Yeah. So he talks about power sets, which will, my understanding is it plays uh, a very important role later yeah. in relationship to the state. But for now, he just uses it to distinguish between belonging and inclusion, right? which are going to be different. Yeah. Uh, one of them is counted, one of them is not. The axiom of union, which for him is the nothing all the way down, that it's about the decomposability of a set. And he says that when you decompose Mm -hmm. a multiple, it will always have to continue being a multiple, whether how how high or low you are in it. Right. Then he talks about the axiom of separation and he just says, oh, just go read meditation. Meditation three. three, Yeah. (laughs) But what he says in meditation three, and this is sort of like him through Russell's paradox, is he says that this is not about language games. And in fact, uh, language has nothing to do with the set itself. Yeah. Right. And then the fourth axiom in this sort of uh, uh, quad pairing here is about replacement or substitution. Replacement. Yeah. And that's about uh, sameness and uh, indifference vis-a-vis the count as one. Yeah. I couldn't tell. Is this sort of like a, sh- is this like a ship of Theseus thing or is it, I, I couldn't tell the, whether it was that or, or whether it was almost like a function where if you have a set, then, then it's about, um, almost like in the way a function works, sort of creating a map between one set and another quote unquote replacement set. So it's almost it, it's almost like a like a like a capacity that the set gives you. It says like, hey, if I'm a set, I also give you this other capacity, which is the capacity of replacement, which is to like map and correspond over to a completely separate replacement. It's almost like the virtual in Deleuze. Yeah, I mean, the cliff notes of what I just wrote in the margins was that if you substitute a multiple, you get the same count. So it means that you know if you substitute the two things, then there's an indifference between the two of them. But why? How? Not exactly yeah. sure yet. It could be, you know, I'm trying to functionalize it or operationalize it way too early. But if I were to try and jump and try and do that, it would be like um, if you were to take two different counts of like a state who is privileging one group over another, and if it just switches who it privileges, if they count the same way, then there's no indifference. It's still like a domination by the dominator. Mm. Okay. We're basically at the end of part one, unless you wanted to talk about Aristotle. 
I think the only thing that comes from Aristotle is he's critiquing naturalism. He's saying that being qua being is not some natural substance. Which, which, which also is an indictment of empiricism, which I love. And any indictment of empiricism, I'm, no. I'm here for. But he, he might also be firing his first shot across the bow of Spinoza here, too. So today, I think Beju represents a strong alternative to a lot of different tendencies in contemporary theory and philosophy. So we see how this is not very much participating in the tradition of so-called postmodern theory or even post-structuralism, um, although there are obviously Beju is coming out of a, you know, deeply in influenced by figures like Althusser and Lacan, um, the post-structuralist obsession with textuality we don't see in Badiou, the kind of anti-utopian quality of a lot of those thinkers we don't see in Badiou, um, the sort of desire to leave philosophy behind. We also don't see that in Badiou. But then also maybe in an, in a, an odd way, I think also Badiou, at least for us, you and me, <laughs> represents a strong alternative to Deleuzeanism, right? To vitalism, to radical materialism, to rhizomatics. Um, and so to explore a lot of these questions, to try to, um, think about Badiou in a, in a larger intellectual history arc, um, we want to turn to, um, an interview. Um, we spoke with philosopher and intellectual historian, Knox Peden, and Knox is author of Spinoza Contra Phenomenology, French Rationalism from Cavaillesse to Deleuze, published in 2014. And Knox has also worked as an editor and translator, um, co-editor with Peter Howard of the two-volume uh, Concept and Form, uh, which contains selections from Cahiers pour l'analyse, uh, the journal. Um, and I should say, it, it, there are, this project also includes a phenomenal web archive that has, in many cases, the French and the English translations, um, summaries of the articles, original facsimiles of the articles, too. Um, and Knox uh, also was recently the co-translator of the book On Logic and the Theory of Science by Jean Cavaillas. And we'll link to all of this work in the episode notes. Welcome, Knox Peden. Um, we want to maybe begin with a, a question about intellectual history, um, about situating Badiou in sort of the, the intellectual field that he comes out of. Um, maybe, maybe you could talk about um, the climate of Marxist theory at the time, Althusser, Badiou's sort of uh, testy relationship with um, the followers of Spinoza in the French tradition at the time. Um, so yeah, let's just begin um, by sort of setting the scene, the kind of intellectual history, um, setting the scene for where Bedu comes from. All right, well, thanks. Thanks, that's a good question to start with. And thanks for having me on, guys. It's, it's great to be able to talk about this stuff. Yeah, I mean, Bedu's a, an interesting figure in this history because he's sort of like untimely in whatever context he finds himself. And, and uh, when he comes on the scene in the 1960s, when he joins the kind of Althusserian moment, he's already older, like a few years older than the guys like Balabar and Ranciere that are also part of this. And um, 
uh, like he's not at the UNS anymore when Althusser is doing this seminar in the 1960s, uh, re revisiting Marx and rereading Marx. So, but what happens is that Badiou himself has a kind of conviction of the converted kind of thing where he, at that time, and up until that point, had been quite Sartrean in his orientation generally, like as a Marxist, um, but also just beyond Marxism. He was, a, he was a Sartrean, he was a Sartrean novelist. He wrote, you know, plays and novels and things in this vein. Um, as were any Marxists really in France through the kind of 1950s. I mean, if they weren't just towing the PCF line, uh, they were fellow travelers in a kind of Sartrean or Merleau-Pontian key. Um, and so the radicality of the Althusserian moment is the rejection of this Hegelian existentialist Heideggerian kind of mishmash of Marxism that finds so much sustenance in the humanist Marx, um, all these kind of existential themes in the humanist Marx. And, you know, the, the provocation uh, the significance of Althusser's rejection of that is, and I think this gets lost a lot uh, even today, is that this humanist existentialist Hegelian Marx is of a piece with the Stalinist Marx, with everything that went wrong in Marxism. Um, and so the whole project of recovery that he undertakes under the banner of science is in fact this kind of purification of these tendencies in Marxism that he thought lent it toward the disasters of the Stalinist era. Um, and then that links up with like Maoism in various ways too, but that's kind of just the general context. And so when Badiou links up with the Althusserians, he, it's like as a repentant Sartre, you know? So he's gonna go even harder against anything that can be associated with that kind of existentialist stance. Um, so yeah, that's just a general kind of setting, I think. And how, and then maybe moving a little bit forward into the 1980s, you know, there's a sort of um, maybe simplistic but useful way of describing Badiou as as sort of like not a post, never a postmodernist, right? And the turn to truth could be understood in that context. What do you what do you make of that um, characterization, um, Badiou versus the postmodernists, and and you know? coming out of theory of the subject and then transitioning into a work like being an event, which I think, you know, is this sort of signal um, kind of pivot point maybe. Um, yeah. I mean, periodizing Badiou is itself part of making sense of Badiou, you know, and, and, and I think, you know, one of, one of the ways in which he takes a distance from currents of postmodernism, at least in their Anglophone reception or what that meant in the Anglophone context is Badiou was never uh, a skeptic of truth as such, right? He always thought, even though his, his notion of where truths were located, how they could be asserted, um, upheld, um, implemented and whatnot, that changes over the course of his career. Um, but the idea that there are truths, I think is something that goes all the way through that. That said, he obviously had a productive, if tense relationship with people like Lyotard and Derrida and in, in the notes to being event, he acknowledges uh, these debts. Um, but I do think that, you know, that one of the things that kind of makes him untimely in the postmodern context, and he shares this with Deleuze, is this kind of recusal of the exhaustion of metaphysics, right? Or philosophy in the grand style, that he's going to keep doing this. Um, he's going to keep system building um, and things like that. Do you think he's successful on the question of truth? And I, I think that you have, you're maybe ambivalent about um, Badiou's version of the return to truth. Uh, do I think he's successful? I mean, that's a sort of remains to be seen, right? 
Um, no, I, I, I mean, I myself, one of the things that drew me to Badiou initially was his stake uh, in truth. And, you know, someone who also did a lot of work on Spinoza, I was always taken by the idea, by the, by the affirmation of truth that you find in Spinoza's rationalism, verum index sui falsi, you know, truth is its own sign and that of the false. And then actually I wanted to do some other work kind of after the Cahiers Penalties, I spent some time with Donald Davidson and analytic philosophy and was really interested in some of the debates there about correspondence versus coherence theories of truth. And then thinking about how those related to what Badiou was trying um, to, to develop in his own work. I mean, like a lot of people, even though I think being an event is the centerpiece of his thought and his most important achievement, by which I mean, volume one, obviously it's the whole thing. And I have to say, I haven't read the Verite, so I can't comment on the third part yet, but, um, but I, like a lot of people have always found something kind of arbitrary about the four discourses or the four way, four truth procedures that, but at the same time, I get why they demonstrate the basic kind of structure of truth or something. Like, I don't know if that's a appropriate Badusianism, but like um, why those four instances sort of uh, articulate something that he's talking about. So yeah, I think that's interesting, but I mean, he, he vacillates, right? And, and this whole notion of whether truth is, you know, how do I put this? Whether truth is something kind of closed, a closed system, that has some sort of relationship to exteriority or whether the truth is precisely the interruption of that gesture of that sort of effort at closure. I mean, that's something that is that bad you is reckoning with throughout his whole career. And in certain moments, he's like more Hegelian on that. And in other moments he's not. And I think that the Kaepernalese moment in the early 1960s and the being an event moment are moments when he's really trying to kind of, articulate a sort of autonomy of truth procedures. Um, and in the Kaipo and Lee's moment, it's really about science, only science is all he really cares about. And then in being an event, he's trying to amplify and show it in different ways. And it, would, it, would it be fair to characterize the distinction as, as, a, as a contest over the status of language, right? Is truth a linguistic or semantic result versus bad you right where he's he, it's really about subjects and a, and a subject's experience yeah no that's a good way to that's a good way to think about it i mean one of the things one of my sort of bugbears in the bad you lacan reception is you guys are probably familiar with this um uh lacanian idea that you know the, the real is the impasse of formalization right um and it's funny because that's what bad you says in theory of the subject right that's like his line but if you look at where, where it actually comes from in Lacan, like where Lacan says it, he says the real can only be inscribed on the impasse of formalization. And to me, there's a big difference between can only be inscribed on and is. <laughs> one of those is like a discursive, a statement about discourse, and the other one is a statement about being. Um, and so, yeah, you get to this this whole idea of like truth is utterance, truth is event. Um, uh, and then the question is, okay, well, the, the truth, the, uh, is, is the truth value of the utterance, the way in which it represents the thing that happened in being. And in a way that's what Badiou ultimately comes to, except that the, the, the whole thing is that truth is not said about being, it's said about the event. Right. And the event is kind of bad use non-being. So it's like 
that's where why truths are rare for him, right? Um, they're still only like extant insofar as they are articulated and we can consider discourse quite broadly as any kind of practice. And that's a very, very Lacanian, right? Where Lacanian Lacan is like, you know, the, what is it, is it about the concept or something? Or it's like, it's, it's the way, the praxis is the way in which man treats real by the symbolic, treats the real by the symbolic. And that's a very broad notion of praxis that includes concepts, that includes thought. So, because obviously we're treating the real with the symbolic and thought. Um, so, yeah, I think that, I think that that's, that that issue about language is really important. And that is one of the issues that comes up, you know, in Kaipanali, in the Kaipanalis, especially in the in Bad Use Bait with Miller, um, about the status of discourse and the status of the sign in discourse. So I don't know, maybe we can talk about that if you guys want to get into that stuff now, or we can circle back to it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, maybe we could uh back up for a moment too to also try and find some of these distinctions with um you know, where does bad use sit within the French tradition of rationalism? And what exactly is at stake with the question of science, especially in relationship to math? You know, there, there are these elements of science that he'll promote at certain times, but that's not always exactly the same as math as well. Um, could, you, could you help us sort of chart that out a bit? Yeah, yeah. So that's so, so this whole issue, I mean, rationalism is is basically a polemical term. And, and I've become really guilty of like kind of reifying one side of it in past work myself, because um, I think that there's a kind of idea in modern French intellectual history that really goes back to Enlightenment, post-Enlightenment, 19th centuries. That, that there's it's the whole Enlightenment versus Romanticism kind of idea. And it's that like rationalism is on the side of uh the Enlightenment and like and it, which links up with materialism in interesting ways. So that's one of the paradoxes of the kind of French trajectories on this stuff is that rationalism is on the side of materialism, which where you would think materialism is about sensuality and sensibility, and that's really more romantic. But you have this kind of rationalist materialism that comes out of the French Enlightenment, which itself is a trajectory out of Descartes. Um, uh, uh, I'm blanking, but Althusser, yeah, has this wonderful essay or this lecture in the reprint of the humanist controversy where he talks about all these trajectories um, about rationalist empiricism, rationalist materialism and everything. In fact, this is because, and that sort of became the backbone of a recent uh, book by Nathan Brown on rationalist empiricism, where he really went way beyond Althusser in trying to explore the consequences of some of these, some of these ideas and, and how they relate to one another. Um, but yeah, so there's that idea going far back, but the kind of more proximate thing has to do with the reception of phenomenology in France um, and the way it gets up, taken up uh, by thinkers working in a Christian existentialist milieu. And so phenomenology is really immediately associated with theology, with Christianity and romanticism um, in France, speaking broadly, right? Um, and and that overlooks that in phenomenology, like in Husserl, in what's going on in the German context, there is this deep and sincere uh, connection to science. I mean, the idea like Husserl cared about science. And you think about the milieu he came out of and like, you know, the same time as Frege and everything, like, this is the moment. Um, and so what gets obscured in the French uptake of phenomenology, which also abandons Husserl very quickly and goes to Heidegger, is this phenomenological interest in science. And so, um, so that's what needs to get recovered, right? And, or I think, or has been by me and some others over the last you know, few years, is trying to say that, look, the reception of phenomenology in France actually did have this other side, people like Jean Cavez, but all the philosophers of science, 
um, Bachelard, Calgium, Poiret, um, were very aware and engaged with this side of phenomenology. Um, and that is sort of humming along in academic circles while the kind of bigger reception of phenomenology on the existentialist side, whether it be Christian or atheistic in the Sartrean vein, is sort of going on. Well, one more thing, just some of your listeners will know that, that Kaveas died in the Second World War. And so to, he was killed by the Wehrmacht um, for his resistance activities. And Albert Lautmann was, was killed as well. And so there was this way in which those who were actually doing this work were, were taken out of the scene. And then one of Kaveas' students, DeSanti, spent the whole 1950s like writing apologies for Stalinism and stuff or the 40s and 50s. And so it kind of it just kind of went away. And then the moment of the 1960s is this kind of rediscovery because Althusser obviously gestures toward this tradition in his own. So, so where would we place both Badiou, but also sort of the mathematical tradition in uh, French philosophy in relation to it? The mathematical tradition. Well, so this is the other, the other, the other kind of side of it. Um, so I mentioned John Cavez, and all of his work had to do with the history of mathematics, right? And he was a real conduit for a tradition in France that was concerned to think about mathematics in relationship to its own history. And here, the really important figure was Cavez's own mentor and supervisor, and really, he really was quite dear to him, was Leon Brunschvig, who was one of the giants of philosophy during the Third Republic. And was a, is often described as a neo-Kantian, but the kind of what neo-Kantianism meant in France isn't, isn't exactly what it means in Germany. Um, and it's interesting, like, this is a little bit of a digression, but Foucault in the famous essay where he talks about the distinction between the philosophy of the subject or consciousness and the philosophy of the concept, uh, also has this further discussion about the reception of Kant in the different ways in which Kant matters in the German and the French context. And in the German context, it's all about actually the legacy of the Reformation and religion and society and all this stuff. But in the French context, it has to do with science and positivism and things like this. And, and the neo-Kantians are trying to kind of ground a historical understanding of science for which mathematics is always going to be kind of the, pin the pinnacle. Um, and so that's going on in the background, and that's behind Kavias. But Kavias very quickly realizes that there are things about the Kantian orientation that aren't going to give you uh, a very clear understanding of the history of mathematics, because his whole point is that this is a history of a science that is not an empirical science. Um, and so how is something like you can think it, it's really easy to come up with a kind of philosophy of history of biology or of chemistry and kind of retrospectively discern the kind of dialectical unfolding of that history through experimentation and, and you know, confrontations with the real or whatnot. But with math, it's very strange because the whole point is that the, the, it's autonomous, like the discourse, like all the verifications are internal to the discourse itself. And yet discoveries in that history happen in time, in human history. So it's like, how do you, how do you get both sides of that? How do you rescue the absolute truth content of mathematics while also attending to its historical becoming? And that <clears throat> is a problem that's already in Brunchvig, and he tries various Kantian solutions to it. But it's what Kavias is really trying to do. And he thinks Husserl can really help him. Um, and Husserl does help him. I mean, that there's a real advance, I think, in, in Kavias's own engagement with Husserl. But um, that all kind of gets abandoned, right? But then what's weird, I don't know if weird's, that's not a technical term, but <laughs> what's interesting is that, like, you know, 
All of that's going on in the history of mathematics. And then, as you guys know, it gets like imported into debates about the scientific scientificity of Marxism via Althusser and science, capital S. But you're right, Andrew, like, like mathematics is the kind of lodestar or is like the content of what it means for something to be scientific because it has to do with that recusal of the empirical, right? Because uh, this whole moment in the 60s of spontaneous philosophy of the scientists and all that stuff is like trying to think, okay, a pure science can't have any, any truck with the empirical, which is the place of the imaginary, which is ideology, which is distortion, right? And so you get to these kind of, you get to these difficult positions that these guys kind of try to stake out for themselves at this moment. And it's like, when it's in the history of mathematics, it's like, well, that's, you see the problem. But when you, when you transport those notions into a science of Marxism that is modeled in some way on mathematics, that's when things get very difficult, right? To kind of even sort out what it would mean to say something. And is that how you, so that must be how you understand, um, because Badiou writes fondly of Jean Cavaillas, and I guess we should remind uh, listeners that you are co-translator of a new publication, something that was published before, but you did a new translation um, of Jean Cavaillas kind of long essay, short book called On Logic and the Theory of Science. And um, you know, he, Badiou, do you, do you think that, that Cavaillas is almost a kind of martyr hero figure for Badiou? Is there also a, an intellectual lineage? You hinted just a second ago at this notion of becoming. And I think you, you, you quote uh, this Cavaillas line, mathematics is a becoming, um, this notion of the orientation to the flux of a becoming. And so is that how you see, I mean, cause that, that language frankly doesn't, feel very Badiouian to me, but maybe, mm. maybe it's a way for Badiou to try to understand, I don't know, dynamism, change. Yeah. Look, I mean, th there's a lot that's been said um, about the relationship between Caveas's resistance activity and, I mean, his manifest sort of heroism in, the, in this political conflict um, and his self-styled um, Spinozism. Like he says, you know, I'm a Spinozist. I believe that all these sequences are necessary, whether they're in mathematics or they're in politics or they're in history. And, you know, basically the, the, um, what it means to orient oneself to truth is to basically just be in line with that, with whatever is happening. And it's interesting too, like, you know, one thing that's often overlooked is that, that Kaveas himself was, uh, was a Christian and was a Protestant. And, and there's a lot of historical links. This is a digression, another subject between sort of deterministic conceptions uh, with the excision of free will that you find in certain kinds of Calvinism um, and Spinozism. Like there is actually a link between Spinoza and these kind of, you know, Dutch reformers and stuff. And it's like, you see this, so that's why it's just not arbitrary that Calvius can have these per, have this personal faith, but also identify himself as a Spinozist, which I think would sound strange and a kind of, Contemporary setting where you think Spinoza is just a cipher for atheism or materialism or something. Um, but what's interesting there is, is the difference between a Spinozist orientation on these issues of mathematics and a Platonist one. Um, because in both situations, you're going to be a realist about mathematical truths. And you're going to think that whatever mathematics is disclosing is not um, just some kind of pragmatic artifice that helps us get around in the world that may or may not be true, you're going to think that what it's saying is true with a capital T. But with a Platonist, with a Platonist orientation, you always have this idea that there are forms, that there is some sort of ideal sphere, and that 
the truths as articulated by us are a kind of representation of those of those forms that exist in some dubious space elsewhere. A Spinozist is really about um, the imminence of truths. And now I realize how pathetic it is. I haven't read that book yet. So anyway, um, but you know, the idea is that you, you, ha you have the same affirmation of truth, but the, the, it's not as if there's some kind of other space in which that truth is, and then it comes to be in the world. And this is something I've in my in my book uh, on French Spinozism and Spinoza contra phenomenology, one of the things I, I kind of have a go at Deleuze on this stuff, uh, who's so you know he's obviously he's Spinozist in a variety of ways. But I say the least Spinozist thing about it is this virtual actual business, uh, because you know he gets it from Bergson, but there's also a way in which it's kind of like Heidegger's ontological ontic, like you know the virtual is the ontological, the ontic is the actual. It's this kind of accreted space, and and I, I criticize what I think are kind of misappropriations of the natura naturans naturata distinction uh, to kind of fit that. Kind of more Spinozist. And um, then Althusser and Badiou too, in various ways. But then the last thing to be said, is I mentioned Albert Lautmann, who was, who was um, obviously his good friend and, and also someone who, who perished at the hands of the Nazis. Um, he, uh, their arguments kind of definitely prefigure some of this later stuff because Lautmann himself was way more sympathetic both to Heidegger and to Plato than uh, Kakaoyas was. Um, and so they're already kind of arguing about this stuff. But to come back to your question, Alex, about uh, becoming and, and these words that seem more Deleuzean than, than Badiouzian, I mean, I think what, what you can see from Kakaoyas in, in Badiou is that the truth is only insofar as it is in a sequence, right? That there's this kind of like sequential, processual kind of understanding of truth. Um, and that's what Matt, yeah, um, Caveas loves this term, enchaînement, like, which I think I, Robin really insisted on this, my co-translator in the Caveas book. We had to be really careful about how we translated that. And I'm pretty sure, hope I'm getting this right, it's sequence. Um, that, you know, that, that that's, um, that's a key term. Um, and that's really important because you don't want whatever process or sequence or, or thing you're talking about, you don't want to mortgage its truth content to some otherwise unfigurable, unpresentable truth that is elsewhere. And that then you're just purely the vector of that because the risk of that is kind of fanaticism, enthusiasm, schwärmerei in a bad sense. You're like, well, I, I understand because I have this special like Gnostic insight into where truth is, whether it's mathematically or politically or historically, and I'm bringing it, I'm bringing it to the world. And it's like, no, 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 no. You're not going to do that. And that's one of the things that Badu's always tried to avoid in his work. I mean, he has moments where he says like, he kind of slipped up and got too close to the Madison side. Um, but that's kind of, I think maybe why, how you could think of a, a becoming in a Kaviesian sense. It's also in, in Badu. Yeah. Don't get too close to the truth, man. It'll burn you. <laughs> <laughs> My eyes. Yeah. So maybe there's a good time to come back to the uh, Kage dispute between him and Miller, because maybe this is actually the ground for that. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's funny. I, I was revisiting these volumes and trying to talk to you guys and I was looking at the interviews um, and I was reminded that, I think Yves Deroux says it, or one of them says, you know, there were only at most ever like 
20 of us who were caring about this stuff or writing about it. And you have a sense of like how small a group this was. Like it really was kind of like a mustard seed or something. Uh, but then it became this huge debate. And maybe, maybe even before we get into the details, could you just set the scene? What, you know, what was Cahiers pour l'analyse? Who was involved? How did it begin? How did it end? All right. Yeah, no, good. We got to establish this stuff. So, um, and I'm glad we're doing it because the Cahiers pour l'analyse is often reduced to the Miller-Badiou debate, which is sort of probably the most important thing about it, but there was a lot more going on. So the Cahiers pour l'analyse was basically an offshoot of the Cahiers Marxist-Leninistes. So you have this moment in the 1960s at the ONS in France around Althusserianism, where all these youths that have been kind of galvanized by the Algerian war and are increasingly concerned about Vietnam and they're just radicalized in various ways, uh, are looking to kind of animate Marxism in, in a new way. Um, and so the other people involved here, people like Robert Lenhardt and uh, Benny Levy, uh, who will also go on to be important players in the 70s and the gauche proletarian, things like that. So it's kind of moment of student radicalism in, in France. Um, so all of this is coming out of the Althusserian reading capital moment. But it, it, if I remember correctly, it is the Cahiers Marxist-Leninist that gets going first. And the Cahiers starts as a breakaway because Alain Gros-Richard and Jean-Claude Milner, two of the people that will be essential to the Cahiers submitted like articles on um, Louis Aragon and like Vitold Gombrovich, like these kind of literature. And the Cahiers Marxist-Leninist guys were like, this is bourgeois, like asceticism. We want nothing to do with it. Come on. And so they're like, what? And so they start their own journal to uh, be able to publish these articles. But in the background, sort of more important than that, is you already have this encounter at the ONS between Lacan and Althusser and the kind of like really motivating force behind the Cahiers Prenalese project is uh, Jacqueline Miller, uh, who listeners will know probably is really important in the history of Lacanianism. Um, but at this moment, like he is really, I mean, he's young, he's precocious, and he just really takes to Lacan's teaching after Althusser sends him over to him. And he and Milner are very close. They're good friends. Um, I mentioned Alan Grorichard is also in the mix. There's also Francois Regnault. Uh, and this is kind of the core crew that becomes the editorial committee for the Cahiers Penalis, and they call themselves the Cercle d'Epistemologie, the Epistemology Circle. Um, and already the kind of premise of what they're doing is, okay, Althusser's done, done this thing with Marx. It's related to what Lacan's done with Freud. Uh, in both cases, what we have is this kind of structuralist revolution or the structuralist purification of these German discourses that we've inherited and that we are now taking charge of because Germany is like stuffed itself in the 20th century. Um, and so this is their, again, precocious self-understanding. And one of the first texts that gets written um, is a text called Action of the Structure by Jacqueline Miller in which he basically kind of thematizes what is going on in structuralism generally, but gives it all a kind of Lacanian gloss. Um, and so that becomes a programmatic text. Then he writes this other thing, which we'll talk about called Suture and, and Badiou reacts to that. But basically like at issue in the Cahiers is this issue of the status of the subject, that in a structuralist understanding of any given field, is the subject included? Is it excluded? Is it fictive? Is it real? Um, what is its status, right? And so the debates 
that kind of play out over the 10 issues of the journal have to do with the status of the subject. And they broadly fall along a Lacan versus Althusser kind of line on, on this. Um, and you can imagine how bemused Lacan and Althusser must have been about this stuff. These like young students are basically like having it out um, in their name. Um, but so I mentioned 10 issues. So why does it end? Well, May 68 happened. And by this point, the last two issues, I think are already sort of in the can, ready to be published. And they're the most kind of abstract out there issues. They're on formalization. I think the number nine is on genealogy of science. And number 10 is on the issue of formalization. And they're very, very abstract. I mean, they're as far removed from practice as you could imagine. And then May 68 happened. And all of these guys, like, abandon this theoretical abstraction. They're just like, what? No, we're wrong. We got to go work in the factories now and spend our time, you know, getting our hands dirty, being revolutionaries. We're done. And that's kind of why the CAE gets, gets eclipsed in history and in the historiography, because even the people that were promoting it disavow it. So they had very few defenders outside of it. And then even its own proponents disavow it. And so it just kind of disappears. Um, but then just one more thing to say about its historical significance is it's not just these guys. I mean, the preface, the introduction, the core text of Archaeology of Knowledge by Foucault was written in response to questions from the editors of the Cahiers Prenelites. And so Foucault, at his kind of most structuralist moment, when he's trying to defend his method, it's in the context of arguments with these guys. And then what does Foucault do afterwards? Well, he basically realizes he lost the argument and becomes a Nietzschean and a genealogist. And that's it. And also Derrida's text on Rousseau that becomes part of grammatology and this whole triangulation with uh, Levi-Strauss and Rousseau is first written for the Cahiers Prenelites. So it is this kind of moment when all of this structuralism is happening in this concentrated place. So that's a general background on, on the Cahiers Prenelites. And, and I imagine that um, disputes over Maoism contributed to the split as well. They did. and that, But I think that that... The, that matters more for the Cahiers Marxist Leninist versus Cahiers Prenelites. Like the kind of status of Maoism within uh, the Cahiers Prenelites is, if it's there, it's muted. I mean, really, the debate is about the status of the subject and who's going to be right, Lacan or or um, Althusser. So we should probably talk about the, yeah, Suture and like what these kinds of arguments are. So yeah, Suture is this very playful, uh, uh, provocative text by Jacqueline Miller. Um, that is that gets actually taken up by film theory in the 1970s and, and the kind of meaning of the term suture changes. And actually, she's actually good on this in our edited volume about how the term changes. But the basic argument of, um, of suture is that in any kind of sequence, in any, I mean, the subtitle of the text is The Logic of the Signifier, that the subject is sort of created in this suturing over of a primordial lack, of an original lack. And by way of analogy, and it's the provocation is whether this is really just an analogy or not, uh, Miller gives us this reading of uh, Frege's Foundations of Arithmetic, in which he says that the, you know, the, the, the number line actually starts with the nomination of the null set, which is zero. And that's what gives you one. You get a one because you have this empty set. And then what do you have now? You have two things. You have the original thing and the naming of it. So you have two and you get these things going. And and uh, Miller's like, look at that. At the root is the null set, the void, nothing. And so you get sub you get substantiality and oneness and unity on lack. And so this just is this brilliant kind of Lacanian 
reading of math. And um, and he says, yeah, and that's basically the nature of, of the subject is like always being carried forward in this chain of signification, but that its root is this fact. Um, and so what happens then is you have this idea that in any given discourse, there's always this kind of murmur of the original lack, which is going to be this kind of thing that can bring it down. And this comes out in the action of the structure essay too, where it's like the lack in any given structure, which is can always be rendered discursively, uh, is going to be the thing that can then lead to a reorientation of the structure. I always think of it like a Jenga tower. It's like you, you the lack is what makes the tower collapse, right, when you take the piece out. Um, and so they have this idea that that's just how subjectivity works generally, like politically or individually or whatnot. So that's 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 the argument. And then Badiou's argument in Mark and Lack, which is so one thing I should say is Badiou is not part of the original kind of movement of the Kaipanelis, the first couple of issues. And I'm not sure exactly how it happens, but at some point someone's like, "Hey, this guy Badiou actually actually knows something about math, so maybe we should talk to him." And they kind of bring him in. Um, but at this point, Althusser is going through his full Althusserian conversion, all about the autonomy of science, and and like Badiou basically rejects Miller's claim that even scientific discourse is haunted by lack, and that's something that comes out of Lacan's Science and Truth text, which is the capstone of the Acree, but was first published in the first issue of the Kaipanelis, and in Mark and Lack. Badiou really defends this idea, this difference between marks, right? But by which I mean M-A-R-K-S, not the German thinker dear to these think people. Um, the, that, that those are always self-identical, not obviously in the inscription. If you write one somewhere and you write it somewhere else, you write X somewhere, you write somewhere, X somewhere else, that's two different inscriptions. But that there has to be a self-identity of marks which is not the same as the self-identity of their reference and that the autonomy of science is totally built on the self-identity of Marx. And there's a weird way in which like Derrida is actually kind of like closer to Badiou on that in some way, or, or kind of understands this, this thing that Badiou is trying to set up in Mark and Lack. And then the third person here that I always like to insist on, because I think this text is quite fascinating is Jean-Claude Milner wrote his own text called The Point of the Signifier, which is a reading of Plato's Sophist, which kind of does something similar there that, Miller does in a very abbreviated way with Frege, but results in a much more nuanced article or a nuanced understanding of this relationship than either Miller or Badiou produces. Um, so that's a text I encourage people to revisit. Um, but again, it has to do with this whole idea of autonomy of science versus primordial lack that's going to undermine it. And where it really gets esoteric is there's this line in Action of the Structure where and I don't know how Miller could have kind of written this before Mark and Lack, but he must have like anticipated the objection already in which he says, um, okay, so you may say that scientists, scientific discourse or mathematics is, has no lack. He says, but the lack of a lack is also a lack. You know, so it's a very kind of dialectical Lacanian like moment. Um, and, and so it's like, then you get into the question of meta discourses and how they relate to each other and things like that. So this is this is what's going on. This is what's you know this is the debate, and you can see how it has a political uh, element in the context of thinkers trying to defend the autonomy of science, and specifically so they can then defend the autonomy of Marxism as a political program. And the Lacanians, and this is one of the interesting things about the reception of Lacan in Marxist thinking, is that Lacan is always always going to kind of bring that down. 
you know, um, like he's, he's always, it's, it's just never going to be. Yeah. Like, Oh, great. Now we have Lacan. Now I can proceed confidently in my revolution. It's like, no, that's ridiculous. Like he, he would totally undermine anything of that. And I think this personally in, about Zizek's essay in our volume is the whole time he's like, look, Miller totally wins this argument, but we can't let Miller be right. So we got to be bad Yusians because that's the only way we're going to have any political future. Um, so yeah, that, that's basically how it goes. So th this absolutely makes me think of this conversation that I had with Andre, where uh, a mathematician in, in Moscow and works in France as well, who, you know, especially even through Eminence of Truths, is concerned with the question of why does Badiou choose set theory? Like, why does he start here rather than somewhere else? It seems kind of somewhat arbitrary. And I think this begins to answer some of those questions, at least a little bit, because it's a question of where do numbers come from? Um, where, where do you start with the not or the null? And for Badiou, he moves on to set theory to talk about you know, the, the axiom of power sets in order to define the state. Um, and he also has aspects of the subject that come through this as well. And so I think that maybe the picture is starting to emerge a little bit here, but it, it's kind of funny then because it's about a debate among Marxists about the theory of the subject rather than you know, uh, something that would be a bit more metaphysical or philosophical that maybe the mathematicians would be a bit more satisfied with. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I think that's right. I mean, I think there are various contingent reasons why it's set theory, and it does have have to do with this moment in in the kind of the reception of the history of mathematics in French philosophy, mediated through this caveas tradition. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, that's just to say that I think that that you're right about that. And you know, one of the debates about that you always has been like, you know, this the provocation that mathematics is ontology. I mean, that's the boldest thesis of being an event and the thing that usually makes every mathematician or philosopher mathematics sort of run screaming because they're like that seems that can't that's just not right you know or that there's just something kind of monstrous about putting those two words together um but i think that it becomes a little bit more intelligible if we ourselves as anglophones who are introduction to european philosophy and, and european marxism and thought is kind of mediated by various kind of Hegelian understandings of history and philosophy of history, we sort of think, well, if you say mathematics is ontology, then you're saying this kind of like absolute ahistorical discourse is ontology. And that just seems manifestly impossible to uphold in, uh, as, as a philosophical thesis. But when you understand that like mathematics itself has a history, right? And, that, and is like, is built out of these sequences and sort of changes and ramifies in various ways without losing its truth, then you kind of understand how built into bad use thesis is that um, recusal of either a kind of too absolutist conception of mathematics or a purely con kind of historicized, psychologistic, uh, constructivist version of it. Um, so yeah, I think that that's, you, you have to kind of understand that to even understand like what his thesis is in that book and how he can kind of get away with it. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I think one thing that you're helping us identify here too is um, how deeply we should take his claim that ontology and math uh, should exist. Are they trying to explain all entities or structures? Are they specific to certain philosophical or political questions? And I know that a somewhat recent book on Badiou and set theory um, 
has claimed that Badiou is not saying everything is reducible to mathematics, but particular um, philosophical or maybe metaphysical questions specific to being. Yeah. And that um, it's not just some universal world system for everything. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, and I mean, then that relates to, to what's going on when you enact a project of formalization. So the, the whole idea of mathematics and formalization is really, really important. And there's this idea that comes from the Kaye moment that then gets developed in Badu's thought that like formalizing a discourse is a, a mechanism by which you kind of see relations that otherwise you wouldn't see. Um, and you're then able to think and act on them in different ways. Um, and that's quite productive. I think that's, and I think that's what a lot of people feel when they first encounter bad you and they're like, this is preposterous. How does mathematics explain anything? And then he gives like a reading of some French revolutionary sequence and you're like, okay, I actually kind of see it. You know, there's a way in which it helps you kind of see things in a certain way. And that's quite interesting. listening and thanks to dana papacristu who provided the music for the podcast please join us next time for episode two on the situation and the state